0: Hey everyone, and welcome to this week's Hardcast episode six. It's currently a wonderful St. Patrick's Day evening while we record this. To timestamp it in every fashion we can, and we're we're trying out uh, some episode titles this week as well at the front of the show. Uh, Robert has has coined the phrase "LSV versus the world." which I'm sure will be uh, a topic in the immediate future. But I've already jumped past normal introductions. I am your host, Kristen Sean Gregson, with my loyal, devoted, I don't know how I find the time to do it, sidekick, although he's considerably larger than I am, I guess I would be the fat Han Solo to the regular-sized Chewbacca of Robert Barton. How are you doing today, Robert?
1: I'm doing great.
0: All right. Um just you know right, fire away, what do we got this week
1: well let's see uh, the news about uh, grand Prix uh, Grand Prix Kobe uh, going on with magic nagoya
0: and yeah, stuff yeah, like that very very much uh channel fireball related news as well as huge magic news about uh, obviously well and world news let's let's not minimalize this situation at all, but we'll start by saying that uh, obviously the Grand Prix that was scheduled for Japan this weekend for those of you that haven't seen the uh the posts or or watched too much of the coverage of what's going on in the country right now has has been postponed and um you know we want to take a second to wish everyone the best in that country right now and hope that the efforts to put everything back back together works out but uh trying to stay on the magic topic of it before we get sidetracked on on world news is what we we have the potential for a a, another magic weekend because of the events in Japan. We don't we don't want to lose a Japanese Grand Prix. Instead, Wizards has announced they're going to try to combine the Pro Tour in Nagoya with the Grand Prix that would have taken place uh, in Kobe and then have a full blown magic weekend just like Paris. Well, with the success of that, you gotta imagine how exciting it's gotta be
1: for people there. Uh, I mean, to have the ability to have, to have people do like they did, where literally the pro can make the top eight of the pro tour and then the next day, you know, scramble to play in the regular event. It could
0: be quite, a, quite an interesting weekend again. Well, you know, Luis and I, um, we talked about it in a Magic TV episode before where, Paul Reitzel's performance at the first Magic Weekend ever was incredible, and um, we thought it was going to be a while before the pros would have an opportunity to even attempt to repeat that kind of performance or surpass it. or Just be able to match it would be incredible. Um, and so we do have that opportunity, hopefully, in, in June for Nagoya. Um, again, it's it's a bit of a surprise that Wizards is choosing to leave the event there, but I, you know... Got to hope that everything's going to work out and it's going to end up being a uh, great event since, it's since again, it's going to be a full-blown Magic Weekend. Uh, Channel Fireball is ex- pretty excited, though, because we do have a booth at that event, so we will be in Japan for Magic Weekend. Fingers crossed I will make it out there, uh, minus radiation suit, and everything will work out just fine. Uh, the main thing is, do you have your passport? Um, I believe I do. I got it renewed... Dot dot dot. At some point, I, I keep I keep meeting to go to Canada. I never bother to. Now that I, it's I don't know. I just uh, other than that, I don't I don't get the luxury of doing the travel circuit like the rest of the boys. But I, I know there's enough time window. I'll go check the old safety deposit box tomorrow. And make sure that I'm up to date. If not, uh, I'll make sure that happens. Yeah, because the difference between a, a full blown
1: passport and what you get here is a pass card to be able to drive into other countries or take. Trains is about an additional four weeks, so it could make a difference. Yes,
0: oh, so. I, I I've had that happen to me in the past. So uh, again, if if passport troubles are the only troubles I have for this for this trip in June, then uh, I'll be pretty darn happy <laughs> if everything else works out. But well, uh, but let's let's keep it closer to home. Let's let's bring it. Uh, what's going on this week?
1: Well, let's talk about the reason why the title of the show is LSV versus the world is. Um, Uh, LSV is doing a series of deck testing, um, letting you know how it's going to play versus the best decks out there. It's basically LSV piloting his Tezzeret deck versus the best players that Channel Fireball has to offer and the best decks that are currently played in standard right now and see how they match up in games. I think it's a great way for people that are on the fence about what kind of deck they want to play to have LSV you know, the deck in his hand showing you how he plays it versus the best matchup. So, you know, when you go to your next major event that this is what you should expect and how it should go out.
0: I think it's great for not only people that are on the fence about playing a particular deck, but at the same time, people that want to have a um, a better knowledge base about a particular deck or a particular matchup, know how to play against a certain deck. Um, you know, I, I think it's it's great for anyone. I mean, with any of the decks that he's has showcased, or I guess at this point he's only showcased one, but is going to showcase. I, I think it's a great uh, tool again for players interested in playing a particular deck or not, because you you want to know uh, any deck, especially tier one into tier two, what what the strengths are, what the weaknesses for, and uh, you do also get Luis's own special brand of commentary and tuning as the series goes on. And and again, we don't want to make it sound like I don't want to make it sound like this is a a kind of a one shot thing. This is something that uh, we should be doing for, uh, I, I, I want to say, a very long time, conservatively. But we will do want to make it a regular facet on the website uh, and something that he's going to be constantly bringing you. The one thing I liked about that he said
1: within the typewritten part of it is he said that it makes him think about so many different options of decks that he would... Not normally think of playing because of the matchups he's doing on this on this level and the amount he's doing. It opens up even him to different options of decks he could play, which is which is always good because the more options you have, the more opportunity you may find the deck that might beat the meta game.
0: I completely agree. I mean, I I've I don't joke when you know I talk to Luis about how he's like you know wh- when have you ever put a Valkoot into play? I mean, when have you ever played this card? Actually, I mean. I'm sure you've had a a list for testing and usually sat on the other side to play against it and you know but but when have you really had to to pilot this thing and actually try to work with it and I think that's a kind of a great example of him having to think outside of his own box and come up with new ideas and I really think that there's a lot of a lot of opportunity for him to uh, work with tools that he usually doesn't work with. Well, that and then, like I
1: said, this series will be a lot of fun, like you said before, and allow people to really get into the matchups, like we said before, but. Ironically, what a shock this week. Uh Webb writes another article about drafting, but this time the draft didn't go so well. It was actually a very difficult draft for him to make picks in and based on the style he likes to play, it was interesting because he his I right away went to his first pick and went kind of against what he said. I know that um the Autonomist is very good where you can put a minus one, minus one, and tap and untap the creature. But mm-hmm. he passed up on Phyrexian Vat Mother, and that thing is such a horse. And I know
0: it's tough. You're pigeonholing you know, yourself. Actually, I hadn't read the article, but I had heard about that uh, from other people around the office. And, you know, for starters, Webb has no problem taking the unpopular angle, uh, going that route. But I think that he has a very strong argument in in saying that you know you're kind of pigeonholed with that mother. Um, Ananimus does not you know it like leaves you more open. Um, the raw power of the cards is uh, it's questionable. I think they're they're much closer than I think a lot of people think. As you know, it's like that mother in so many situations seems like a windmill slam, seems like it's going to be a great card. Um, but you know in you know reality it's not too sweet in the uh, the poison mirror. I mean. How many times is it not going to have an infa- impact on the game versus autonomous or Anatomist, Uh, which, you know, it's usually going to have an impact on the game. It's one of those cards where it comes down, it's like, answer me, or I'm going to be a huge problem immediately, uh, as opposed to Mother, where it's like, well, maybe I can take a hit from it, I can chump block it a few times, won't be a factor in the game, if you have evasion, maybe, you know, it's a, again, poison mirror match, who knows. I mean, I, I've definitely been one of the people that my opponent cast it, I arrested it, and eventually proliferated my opponent out of the game thanks to his own vat mother. And not to say that, you know, that's a common occurrence for what happens, but I definitely see Webb's argument, and uh, it sounds like a Webb thing to do. Yeah, and that's the style he likes to play. I mean, so there's
1: no doubt that I can understand that. I always try to look at it the deck of how, when he picks, how I would pick versus it. And it's interesting, it just the draft didn't seem to go. It seemed like whoever he was drafting with, that group, seemed to have, Almost like was mirroring what he was trying to take, and it made it difficult because the pieces weren't coming together. But it was a great article, and and not all, not all the time he goes four o in every draft. So it was it was a kind of nice to read an article where he actually did not go four o, and you know to explain. I didn't realize my, he
0: got I didn't realize he got to play four rounds in draft these days. Usually it's just three or three. I'm sorry, three o, three o. Sorry, apologize, three o. But four, you know four was even more even more impressive. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, you know. Uh, you know, with Webb's series, like unlike a draft video, already any of the guys that do the videos can sit down, just fire up the software and kind of talk you through it. Um, Webb's process takes a lot longer and um, gets you a lot deeper into the entire draft process, thought process, pick process. And um, you know, I, I definitely I would never see him giving up on one. I mean, not that uh, any of our authors really have the luxury of being like, ah, oh, you know, I'll just run a couple more drafts until I have one to talk about. Although, again, it seems like one that was worth talking about anyway. But uh, yeah, put put in the, you know they're not all winners. It happens to all of us. No, but it I mean, was o- obviously obviously I'm the poster child for not for not winning. <laughs> but uh, even even to the great Ocho, it's not it's not always success.
1: Yes, and it's also nice to see that just because you know you're used to seeing success, it's also nice to see that there's a normal side to them as far as they actually don't always win. Um, Kyle wrote an article this week on how to win a uh, pro tour with the three T's, testing, travel, and the actual tournament itself. A lot of those threes, those three T's are very basic in nature, but it is very important for all three of those things to work together for, you know, who you test with, how your group works, um, setting up travel, making sure you're getting things taken care of that way, and of course, obviously, your performance at the tournament. You know, that's really what matters. I thought it was a lot of fun. It gives you just a real basic way of kind of, hey, this is what you should do, and this is how you should plan things out to make it easier for you
0: to do well at your next large event like Grand Prix Dallas. So Yes, yes, so. just like that. Uh, a lot of travel arrangements going to go into a Grand Prix, obviously more than your local PTQ. Um, obviously with PTQs it's usually, you know, the, the locations don't change that often, so you should know kind of how far you're willing to go and um, – you know, obviously, like, for me, I've known plenty of people. Being in California, we could have PGQs in the same state, but that doesn't mean that they're necessarily obtainable by anyone that lives in the state, or reachable, rather. Um, it's quite a quite a travel commitment, and I've you know, I've definitely known the guys that have planned out the weeks ahead, when they're going to go down there, who all are going to fit in a room, uh, make sure they get sleep, and I've definitely known the guys who, you know, being in the Bay Area, Sure, it's like 7 p.m. on a Friday. like, oh, you know, we'll, we'll drive down there and be down there ready six hours away for, for a 9 a.m., 10 a.m. PGQ. We'll be fine. And uh, you know, results have, have shown in the past that that does not work out as well, regardless of how sober and willing to drive you are. <laughs>
1: yes, last-minute arrangements to a tournament. Getting to a tournament at the last second never really works out well for
0: the person. Um, and, you know, there's, there's plenty of stories of I didn't sleep at all the night before, I didn't have a deck. I walked into the room, I won the whole thing. Yeah, there are plenty of tournaments. That's going to happen. That's great. But odds are you're going to be better served
1: by uh, rest and preparation. Yeah, somehow testing really does help. Josh this week with the green-white quest deck uh, that has the answers in the metagame, the one thing that he does right away is he basically sides out his quest for the Holy Relics and turns it, into a completely different deck. So when you're sideboarding in the hate against the, uh, against the enchantment, he sideboards it out so those cards become useless. It, it was, it's a very good read for those of you that want to play a different deck that's not one of the standard four or five ones in Tier 1.
0: Well, yeah, um, the, the quest build, it feels like it's gone through several iterations at this point. Um, obviously, it all started with mono-white, which is very narrow. Adding the Fauna Shaman Benjamine package went a long way for that deck. Uh, adding the Stone Forge package, very similar, kind of kind of mixing things up. And I'm very to see what kind of incarnations Josh moves into from there. I, I would imagine, without having read his article, without having looked at it, I would imagine he turns into kind of a Fauna Shaman utility beatdown deck. But uh, but I'm not sure because it, it seems more resilient than just kind of the, try to quest for the blowout. Well, let's let's I'll run through
1: real quick what he brings in, quick. He brings in three Green Sun Zenus, another Tectonic Edge, a Baneslayer Angel, a Sun Titan, Hero Blade Horde, uh, Hold, Linvala, a Leon, Leonol and Frelic War, a uh, Viridian Corruptor, and a Volt-Tail Masticore. So he so literally yeah, that's flips a, the kind deck. Of a
0: complete, complete Fauna Shaman package deck at that point.
1: Yep. Which is very good. For that game, because when you're used to the person, oh, I'm going to prepare for his Memnites or Glint Hawks or the Argenta Mariner he's going to play, and the Holy Relic I'm going to get those blasted out of there, and then he goes no, completely moves it out, and I think it's I think it's a a deck that's it's out there like you said, but it's not really expected because everybody's expecting Cobblade, everybody's expecting Valakut, et cetera. This is one of those ones that that they have to prepare for and go what's my sideboarding answers for it? And in his case, you sideboard the wrong way. He could sque- he could take game two and it's over.
0: Yeah, it definitely. I mean, like, uh, the deck has potential where you can win game one on raw power, and then if you can kind of um, not necessarily transformational sideboard, but still use the same kind of creature-based aggressive shell, but move away from the kind of quest blowout variety, a lot of people will be caught off guard by it. You might get the, catch them with some dead cards in their deck, like Revoke Existences or... I don't even really know if there's any other enchant. I get Nature's Claims, I guess. Those are the kind of cards that you will find people bring in that are that are now more or less dead draws in the matchup. So you you can definitely take it take it a new direction. That's uh that'll be good for that deck. Uh,
1: Travis Wu this week has extended decks with Lone Missionary, the Mono White deck, and another Bant deck with our favorite weapon of choice, the Sword of Feast and Famine, which seems to so be that,
0: everywhere. uh You know, a lot of people I know love Travis Wu articles. Uh, again, you get, you get a little from both ends of the spectrum. You get seemingly, I mean, not obvious, but you seemingly like a uh, natural progression for uh, an extended deck where, again, we're, we've got the old uh, Stoneforge sword shell, and you got something completely out of left field with uh, a deck in extended that plays Lone Missionary, which, uh, again, I, I've heard about it from people. I haven't looked at the lists or the article yet, but that definitely sounds like something that uh, is exciting and interesting enough that I should check out this week.
1: It's funny. He plays, it's the one. It's like he's got three lone missionaries and one on the sideboard. It's just it's a it's a fun mono white deck uh, that uses every option that it can to just totally make the board as difficult as possible for your opponent to get successful, including including the, the card that seems to be very popular, Mortipod which seems to be ah, everywhere. Yes,
0: yes. Sneaking, sneaking its way more and more into construction these days, the mortar pod. I'm, I'm getting
1: more and more impressed by the design team that are coming up with uncommon and common choices for equipment that are successful. The Life Staff, MortarPod. I mean, normally equipment's been kind of like, oh, it's equipment, Shh, throw it to the side and now it's actually becoming useful so it's it's kind of nice you hope that wizards gets the idea of maybe we need to keep something in the game like that to be able to still use the equipment because once you know once stormforge mystic goes to the side i highly doubt you're going to see a lot of people squeezing the equipment like they did before as
0: uh, you know, you never know. You never know. Once once we've all seen all three sets from the Mirrodin block, there could be more like it. I think the equipment uh, as a whole has kind of waxed and waned over time in Magic. Uh, obviously, when it first hit the scene, there were a few that were extremely, I would say overpowered, but very high-end in, in their quality, and it kind of overshadowed a lot of the seemingly playable ones that you may or may not have seen with seasons to come afterwards. That equipment kind of went through a phase where you didn't see it at all. It wasn't impactful at all. I mean, you think think Lorwin block, you think uh you know, Shadowmore block, you think Shards block. There weren't exactly equipment cards running around constructed for the most part. There was a lot of, of cute stuff or limited only implication cards, you know, kind of uh plays on cards like uh Leon and Scimitar with cards like Rune Salagtide and Lorwin, but nothing that was really uh, even in con- intention for uh, standard, or constructed, rather. And now you've got, obviously, swords, which were powerful in their previous incarnations in uh, Mirrodin, although they didn't get really see action until uh, other, other equipments, <clears throat> cough, cough, skull clamp, <laughs> were banned. Um, so those are obviously very powerful, and, and who knows how many of them could be played post-Zendikar block when things rotate. It's going to be very interesting to see how they shape up, but it seems pretty clear that there are constructed caliber equipment cards in standard right now and possibly ones that will break free and uh, be in new decks past Stoneford Mystic. Well, Adam this week has seven tips for Legacy, and a lot of them
1: are very good standard stuff to go with, but he also goes through the decks that are that are reasonable to play right now, which are borderline and probably not a good idea. It was interesting that the decks that seem to do that you don 't see anymore, like uh, the, actually the one that actually won a couple weeks ago was high tide, and he has is it, probably not a good idea and I <laughs> thought that was interesting I just and then I also heard that enchantress almost made the top eight, and he said that 's not a good idea either so it 's interesting to see his choices and the thoughts he has for each one. I just think it's legacy now is becoming so popular thanks to um, thanks to Star City doing their events and stuff like that, and basically dedicating an entire day to it,
0: which is drove the prices of a lot of cards through the roof. Uh, well, these, um, things, these things are in no way a coincidence. Um, no. you know, if you think about Wizards' heavily sponsored formats, almost through the hi- entire history of Magic, it's always been on a very short term for playing cards. Um, and it, it's n- no surprise to me that third-party websites or dealers after the fact are the ones that are more interested in pushing Eternal formats. Uh, I think we've kind of universally found out through the long timeline of Magic that Vintage just isn't a level enough playing field or a little too swingy in the way the matches play out, the games play out, and the power level that it it couldn't be the format that was more or less resurrected and sustained by a third party. But we've definitely found that Legacy is still... You know, it's it's governed well enough at the Wizards level as far as bannings go, that it can then be a fruitful environment outside of you know the one or two grand prix's that they put on a year, which is really kind of the only um, high level events that you see Wizards put it behind. So uh, again, I, I think it's it's both good and bad for the game simultaneously that that uh, Star City has really not only kept Legacy on the map but really pushed it to be you know, kind of bigger than Extended is right now. It's it's one of those formats where it's like, it, it always kind of seems like, well, I, you know, I, I should probably build a Legacy deck or I should probably have a competitive Legacy deck. I should really check in on that format because who knows, you know, I might be at an event where that Legacy side event is is large or interesting and the format's diverse enough where um, you can play a kind of, you know, there's a lot of, so many options. Like, you know, whatever, what, what did you like in Magic when you, when you were growing up? What did you like in Magic when you've ever played? There's probably a, a deck... Like that, and like I say, that you could play in one incarnation or another. The and, and I think there should I think there really should be more articles about it because I think that it's a subject that I don't think I know enough about at all. And I think it, again for its health moving forward, a lot a lot more people would benefit from uh, from more input on it. Well, it's fun because it's nice to see
1: the decks that you saw in standard, you know, six, seven, eight years ago, nine years ago. Then all of a sudden you're like, wow, I remember playing that deck and. For somehow, when I remember watching them play that deck, I never remember doing what it did. But still, it, it's it's a lot of fun for it to do. But we had a winner of the Channel Fireball 5K, and he wrote his first article about uh, Michael
0: Hetrick. I think I think he's written articles before. I don't know if it's been for our website, but I, he's probably making his Channel Fireball debut this week with his 5K you know, tournament report. I think.
1: Yes, when you were there. Uh, you said you didn't get to see a lot of the matches, but was it not interesting to see that a standard blue-white Cobblade deck won?
0: Uh, it, it doesn't surprise me at all. Uh, in a way, I'm, I'm pretty glad to hear it. Uh, it. It is currently the deck that I'm, built, I'm playing online, mostly because I, I had the previous incarnation of Chicago on Magic: Gathering Online prior to the release of Siege, so I didn't need to re- acquire that many new cards in order to to make it uh, a, a deck I had online. So I've definitely seen exactly what I've said, where there's a consistency of playing two colors like that kind of opens up more of your card options um, within, you know, within those colors and kind of more colorless cards as opposed to trying to splash a third color and how that changes your deck. And I'm glad to see that uh, that kind of consistency was something that Hatrick was able to uh, pilot to a win.
1: How different when you... How many evolutions of your uh, Blue-White Cobble deck have you gone through? Personally. Me personally? Yeah. Uh,
0: I, I, the problem is I don't have that much time. I, you know, I'm, I'm okay. not the guy. Like right now, I'm still kind of getting the framework about like, well, you know, what cards can you change? What cards are obviously part of the the shell? Like what 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 what's untouchable? Um, and there from like what choices in the current meta are important? You know, to have or what answers you want to have, and then how do you kind of want to tweak it moving forward to make sure you can win mirror matches, and make sure you can win this this match, or that match, and not lose too much in this particular match. I mean, the, the version I'm running right now, since I'm playing online, uh, you know, I have to be uh, aware of a lot of Valakud matches, although I've surprisingly played against a lot of like, wee, weird decks, where it's just like, you stick with the A plan and everything kind of works out fine. Um, I think at this point in the standard queues, I've played against a monocolor deck of all five types. And I only have like 20 matches under my belt, but I, you know, I've obviously played against Aggro Red, the uh, Grand Architect Blue, Elves, some kind of wonky mono-black control, and then like mono-white Quest. And I think that's really funny that, you know, in a metagame where we, we're so clearly defined what Tier 1 is, and we know a lot of what Tier 2 decks are, there's a lot of uh, people running monocolor decks on Magic online. You weren't playing against Matt for the Elf deck? No, no, oh,
1: Okay, no. Okay, just, just was checking. Just wanted to make sure in case you were playing against I,
0: that. No, I, I completely understand. I completely understand.
1: <laughs> um, Alexander this week. But, uh, go ahead, know, sorry.
0: I don't know. It's, it's, we, we, we mentioned that he wrote a tournament report uh, about the blue-white tech. Did he have, I mean, what, what, what were Hedrick's uh, insights? Uh, he basically described every
1: matchup and what cards he substituted in and out. And that's kind of the thing about it that a lot of – a lot of people can take a shell and they can play a shell. Oh, it's blue-white. I can play this. The one thing that I really like that when articles are written like this is they show you what the substitute against the right decks and why. And that's, that's what his article goes into a lot of depth about of against the Boros matchup and why he took certain cards out and why he put the certain ones in against it. Which again, I think really helps because sideboarding is when done correctly can Really make the difference between you winning a match or losing a match
0: because no, yeah. sideboarding plans are huge, and for especially for decks that are quote unquote established, uh, when you see a list that may have won a tournament or, or had a very good showing that you're interested in using, understanding the sideboard choices that even you know, kind of connect to why main deck choices were made the way they were go a very long way. I think it's very important to have that information in, in any article where you're going to talk about uh, dissecting one particular deck.
1: The one thing that I said, that's that was the big point, I think, of his article, was, is how the matchups played. And he saw, basically, most of the major matchups in his run to winning, including the mirror match, which is the, I think, quite possibly for that, I think it's its worst matchup, is the mirror match. Anytime when you have a control deck like that to play against the mirror, it, it can be a mess, and you really have to have the right plays. And, obviously, it worked because he won. So... Uh, Alexander this week wrote an article that I really really liked uh, about how to build the correct mana base for your multicolored decks, including Blade with red. I found that out because I love statistics and numbers, and he went through a series of explaining how the certain, the number, the percent, the numbers you have for each one, what it means, and how you can have not the right combination of stuff of mana and miss completely with what you're looking for. Uh, it's a it's a really good article. Take your time to read it, especially if you play you know, three-color decks, to get a full understanding of what cards you need to get to the color mana base you need to do to run the deck correctly. That's the best way to describe it. Uh, it's right it's
0: definitely a great article. I mean, I, people ask all the time, how do you build a mana base, how to build a mana base, and Luis and I... We did a Magic TV on one that would focus primarily on uh, limited, and you know I, I've had people subsequently ask about it. And I'll usually refer them to that episode, and then they'll come back to me like, "Well, you don't really, you know, how do you do in constructed? How do you do in constructed?" Uh, so having an article that really breaks that down for players, you know, if you think about it, like you know when people want to come up with their own ideas, when people want to build their own decks that are off the map, and uh, you know nowadays you've got Colin spoiling it for people all the time and taking rogue elements away from people. Um, you know, if you really want to start from scratch, mana base is possibly the most important thing. So to be able to ha- have kind of a good primer for, you know, all you want to do is count the number of mana symbols of each color you want to put in your deck and then put lands in uh, that will meet those needs and then tweak around, and, tweak around those aspects is a huge deal. And
1: Chaz this week wrote about the green commanders, uh, including the... Uh, the ones that are really fun is because for most people that play green, green brings out, definitely brings out the Timmy and you because of the fact that you can get such huge creatures out there. The card that he talks about in there that I really thought was nice is he he likes to talk about the fact that, uh, the undervalued Praetor's Council and how valuable it is in a green, a green deck like that, commander deck.
0: Yeah, I, uh, again, it's a format that, um, I know next to nothing about. Luis doesn't play. So, you know, we did a hit or myth segment on our show about it. Uh, we've mentioned it before in in Besiege previews. It was one of those things where it's like, well, well it seems like it could be really good in a, in a super slow, giant mana format. But it was like, you know, it, this card couldn't ever really be competitive in a competitive format. It would ever really do anything, you know. And we always kind of write it off or not really know how to evaluate it. So Sam, having someone like Chaz, who, uh, again, that is a, a huge interest level for him really kind of puts it into perspective, because again, it seems like it could be really good. It seems like you do a lot of cool stuff, and and uh, as I understand it in the commander format, green does often, you know, generate a ton of mana, so getting the most out of it seems like it could lead to a lot of fun circumstances. The one
1: card that I liked what he said was, uh, there's a card for uh, uh, the Urza's Legacy, the the foil that was on on the reserve list and cuz it's no likelihood of reprinting it and it's it's only a $2 card but it was a very popular card for uh certain certain generals within that that genre he had a lot of fun with it and i thought it was you know like i said it's it's an in, it's interesting just to see what certain cards in certain cards that are restricted and are not able to be reprinted that are very interesting. I also, like I said, that's the, to me, that's what I get out of a lot of those. It's like, oh, you know, that card may not ever be reprinted again. So if I can find it somewhere for the price he's looking for, you need to get a hold of it now because these cards are only going to go up. They're not going to go down. But speaking of someone mm-hmm. who, who, I'm sorry, speaking of someone who writes who wrote an article this week that really caught me off guard was Paulo. Uh, Paula wrote an article this week about unusual formats in Magic, including one that I didn't know about, and I don't know if you know about, was the Nassif format? So far, don't know what you're talking about. Okay. Uh, <laughs> he has no idea what it's called. It's similar to a Winston draft, but with more people. Uh, take a cube stack, and then each player flips two cards into two different piles, then the first player selects from one pile uh from anyone. If you play with four people, it'd be eight piles to choose from. And if you play with another eight, you can do also one pile per person. After that everyone flips another card into their piles, and then the second person chooses a pile. I thought that was kind of crazy. It seems to be it seems to be a unique way definitely to play it. Um, and then the other one that for perfect for someone like Paulo, is called Mental Magic. And what you do is you flip a card, and then you sit there and go, okay, the mana cost is 2 and a, 2 and two blue, and you have to name a card that fits in that 2 and 2 blue, and you can cast it. I mean, there's no mana, but you flip the card and say, okay, it's uh Abundance. Okay, what card in Magic is two and two blue that I could cast with the same? Well, emotive.
0: abundance is two. Abundance is two and two green. Oh, two, two and two green. Know, I'm uh, sorry. Mental, I apologize for that. Yeah. Uh, mental, mental magic is. Um, it, it has been very popular in the circles of people I've known. It is one of those kind of like um, mental acuity type tests for people that have worked in a, you know the magic. I wouldn't say industry, but if you ever worked around cards and had to do lots of organization and sorting and organizing of them. Um, you, you, you often sit down and play with your friends and it's like, well, my knowledge is deeper than your knowledge. Well, I, I you know, I, I can name a ton of cards at that cost that, uh, can do these things. And, um, yeah, I've definitely, definitely played that one over the years. But again, like, uh, I, I think it's important to play it with, uh, with, you have to represent cards as lands. Because if, you have, if you have infinite mana in that format, you should just win immediately. There's no, there's, because there's, you know, almost any card can draw another card or, or find another card or, um, but yes, that's it's it's a great skill tester. Definitely uh, players who think they're on equal footing uh should play that game. Here's
1: the other one that I think you would have a blast with. Alphabetical Mental Magic.
0: It starts with A. <laughs> oh, that's harder. It's ah. just so anno- it's just annoying. <laughs> like it, look, it took me long enough to like memorize every single card that like drew a card, but to then try to have to like When you can't do that, it it adds adds so many more levels all at the same time. It's like, all right, well, I have to play this G card, and I can't draw a card with it, but I instead have to do the best thing I possibly can. Somehow
1: I picture the guy sitting there trying to play that, and that would be something that would be fun to videotape. Okay, G, I need this, this, okay, yeah. I mean,
0: it... it, (laughs) It, that would be a lot of fun. And then Yeah, the, the the alphabetic one is uh that is a that's a pretty big game. I mean the the traditional version of mental magic again, we play with a play with a full seven card hand, you play you know, any card in your hand may be played as like a painless city of brass and then um you just play so on and so forth. We and you have the option like do your your lands have land types or not? Or like what cards are banned? But uh it's usually a lot of fun, but uh, but again, if people play with the infinite mana thing, I, I definitely had to break up little circles at work where people have like stopped to play and be like, "All right, guys, get back to work." They're like, "Oh, we're in the middle of Magic game." I was like, "Okay, well, that card does this. That card does that. You can now do that. Discard your whole hand. Draw seven. Okay, you okay. You can just kill them with like anything. All right, we're done. You guys go back to work." <laughs> and then we have the two articles that are coming out uh, at the time
1: of this recording would be today. Uh, Conley writes an article about growing in life as a person through Magic. One thing that I really admire about Conley's writing is, for being very young, because Conley's a, a young man, that he has such a great philosophy that, you know, kind of magic Magic makes him who he is, and he makes magic what it is for him, and it's a great article if you kind of want to get a grasp on someone who is young as Conley is, that can... Get something out of magic for himself to make him a better person. He said, you know, in the article basically how he's grown a lot over just the last year through magic. And I thought that was, to me, again, another fun article to read from Conley. I think he does some very underappreciated work, I'd like to say, because everybody's so used to him being the rogue deck designer and stuff like that. I think that some of his best articles are the ones like this where he basically goes and says, hey, you know, this is who I am, and this is what Magic does. And
0: I really like those articles as a reader of them. It is. Those are, you know, those are the, uh, you know, you don't you don't get them very often. I don't want to say, like, once every six months, once every quarter, you can kind of see somebody doing one of these, but it's like, Conley did something similar actually right before Paris, where he talked about kind of uh, putting things in perspective when playing the game. And uh, they're, they're usually quite an interesting um, retrospective by a player about how they feel about things. Again, like I said, it's another opportunity
1: to get into the mind of someone who really loves magic for what it is, but it's it's not going to be his entire life. I mean, he talks about in the article how... You know, one day we all kind of walk away from magic for a while to go have a real life, and then we come back to it again. And I think for those of us who are a little bit older, we've been there and done that. We've walked away from magic for a while, but the itch and the bug of magic always draws us back.
0: You know, I've I've said it before. It feels like I've said it countless times, but I think that one of the reasons I feel like this game will never die is because there are so many people that... You know their connection is is so deep and i and i'm one of those people I, I have definitely walked away from magic what I felt like completely and you know would never come back was done with it you know had to grow up or whatever, and sure enough, here I am now, so uh yeah, you know if, if I can do it anyone anyone can be just as interested at any level well, ironically, Brian kind of
1: pseudo writes the same article i don 't want to say. But he talks about how magic has affected him and his life and what it again what it does for him it's not the same article but it's it explains a little bit how his view of it and then how important it is to develop the community of magic to make it a better place so therefore you know to be able to deal with people that trade correctly and little things like that to. Make it fun. And it's like I said, it's another article that he kind of, you know, reaches out to people and says, okay, you know, this is what happens. And then this is why it's important for everybody not to be that, that person that's that trader that's going, Oh, I've got a trade pack to power. You know, what I'm saying to make right deals, fair deals to kind of make it good to help the community grow as a whole. So not that every time someone comes up to you with a trade binder, you're kind of like, ooh, uh, no, I don't want to trade. Although that'd be good for you guys because that means I come to you, but still, <laughs> you know what I'm saying by that. So Brian wrote a great article this week and now
0: let's go to the uh, product preview. Uh, for those of you that don't know, usually, uh, we're not usually, uh, but usually if you go by the website, there the be uh, slideshow scrolls going by, and you've probably seen that we have faction packs, faction booster boxes, on sale. The seemingly once holy grail of the pre-release is now uh, in limited supply available on ChannelFireball.com. You can get not only sealed faction boxes, but also faction booster packs of either side. And the real question is that now this product is a little more readily accessible, is it really worth obtaining it all? I mean, it obviously isn't this, this coveted rare item that will be worth you know its weighed in gold at one point because it was never released. Here it is. It's not, like, officially released, but um, we do have access to some of it to sell. Uh, is it something to pick up and still hold on to at this point? I definitely think that's not the case. So the bigger question is, do you play with it to open it? Is your chance of getting good stuff better? Do you buy it to have fun and play some faction-related seal with you and your friends? Uh, I don't know. It's uh, it's kind of one of those up-in-the-air things that, you know, I, I definitely, I, I can say 100% don't buy it to invest in it, but I can definitely say if you enjoyed the pre-release, if you enjoyed Faction play and think that's something that your play group would be interested in, it shouldn't be hard to get a few people you know, you know, interested in kind of uh, going in on a box of this stuff, because it's the same, if not cheaper than, uh, or actually I'm not sure where it's at. It really depends on our supply um, it might start cheaper than a regular booster box. It, it might quickly end up being more expensive, depending on how much we have. Um, but, it, but it could be a lot of fun with with your friends to have a uh, you know a, a team sealed faction specific day. I, I think that's kind of what my thought would be if I was to get this product because I would want to play with it and have fun with it. Because again, I didn't get to participate in the pre release. But beyond that, uh, you know, what are your thoughts, Robert? Did you ever, did you play the pre release with the with the faction packs?
1: Yes, I did, and I had a really good time with them and. Again, if you're playing percentages of cards you want to get, the faction packs would increase those percentages. So therefore if you're looking for Yeah, if you're for looking for, stuff. you
0: know ink moth Nexuses, Green Sun Zeniths, Phyrexian Crusaders, you know, go Phyrexia. If you're looking for uh what are the good mirrin rares? Slagstorms, Storms, crusaders, maybe some, some heroes. You could go Mirren, and and obviously um, Tezzeret is in both, so if you get a box just to crack a box, you're not going to affect your chances of getting the quote-unquote chase card in the set as it stands right now. I was happy to see that when they did that originally
1: that Tezzeret was going to be in both because... I could see everyone and their brother going the other direction just to make sure they had a chance at Tazeret. it. So, at least they did that right when it came to it. So, I give them credit. But now let's go to my favorite part of the thing, which is your five buys
0: and sells of the week. I, I know you're it always it always excites you so much, and I was saying we should like make it a separate show. So,
1: hey, uh, I, I don't know. all right. Look at what look how much fun you guys have on your TV podcast when you uh, when you talk about the cards and you know. You know your likes and LSV, you know likes. I think that's a lot of fun. So anytime, anytime you're talking money like this, it's good for me.
0: Well, I think uh, Luis, Luis and I strike up a very important balance where he is solely uh, concerned about competitive, the state of competitive magic, and be able to play competitive magic. And I'm and I'm not like that. I, I have to look at not only a card from a purely store financial perspective, but from more like a a player. You know, a, a PTQ grinder to to casual F and M or where it's like you know, do I want to, how do I want to get this card? Do I want to get this card? Should I unload this card? That kind of thing. So we strike a good balance there. But but in that same vein, uh, I am connected to the finance side all the time. So let's 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 begin. Should we, should we start like where, where should we start here, Robert? You're looking at this list.
1: Yeah, I'd like to go to a card that was that had another. I'm gonna say two week MTGO run. Uh demons of death at Deathgate. That it was a popular deck uh, for Vettera. I,
0: I would like to think I would like to think that was a a world's run. Um, this card went from kind of the Redhead stepchild Mythic Rare of M11 to a shining spotlight in the vampire's deck around the world's time because oh Valakut can't stop it. Oh you can play this guy on turn three all the time um, you I know, mean, it's it's still a a quality threat in the vampires sideboard. Obviously, you don't want to main deck it in any world where Jason Mind Sculptor is everywhere. Um, but it, it definitely has come and gone in its moment in the sun, and a lot of that has to do with the popularity of the vampires deck, and in conjunction with the adapted sideboard. I mean, obviously, the the decks you're playing against it's a more diverse field, so you don't necessarily want a whole bunch of uh, Demons of Death gates in your sideboard when you need access to cards like Crush and Manic Vandal. So it, it's definitely, it, it hit its plateau. It stayed there for a while, and now it's back on the on the decline. And, you know, it doesn't seem like it was all that long ago that it was really like a dollar mythic rare, and, and it, it had this huge explosion to 5 $6, and now it's slowly coming back to uh, reality. And another one that was a...
1: Uh uncommon staple in a lot of blue-white control decks, Wall of Omens.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you're going to cast a card that costs a white and one these days, it's probably every card that's not Wall of Omens. You've got Squadron Hawks, you've got Stoneforge Mystics, you've even got Divine Offerings in your sideboard, you've got Celestial Purges in your sideboard. You just, you don't really have Wall of Omens. I, they don't stop Squadron Hawks, they don't stop uh, Heroes of Ridge. they don't stop so many of the threats that are out there right now, and yeah, either no one's coming in on the ground or cards are going through it, over it, around it. Um, it's kind of a shame because, obviously, up until this point, this card was one of the, the you know, there was a lot of quality uncommons in El Drazi, and Wall was definitely one of them, and now it seems like it's kind of it dipped below where Draga Tree Speaker is in, is in value, and they've kind of traded places in the uh, the hierarchy of Rise of the Eldrazi Uncommons, you want to see when you open your booster packs. Here's another one
1: that I thought was going to hang around a little longer for value, but maybe I was wrong.
0: All is Dust. You know, in all reality, All is Dust was far more of a speculative card than a card of action. Um, Right as the Shards block was kind of rotating... um, Everyone was thinking, oh, you know, Drazi Green is going to be such a good deck. It's it's unaffected by the rotation. You've got this Wrath of God effect and all his dust in conjunction with all these ramp spells of Primeval Titan. It's going to be the real deal. And while Drazi Green has been, you know, was in various incarnations a competitive deck, uh, all his dust wasn't a main deck guarantee for the deck. It wasn't a home run for the deck when I played it. And uh that was really where it saw any action at all. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying it's not a playable card, but I think it, it has been and it still is. It just... The fact that it's Mythic Rare really kind of swings its value more than, again, if it was Rare, uh kind of topping out at the $16 range when it was thought to be its best, kind of settling now down the $7 to $8 range. Could it go lower? Sure. I mean, if, if there's, you know, nothing happens in the next six months where this card sees any action... It'll just kind of slowly dwindle off into to casual play, and who knows, maybe make a big comeback and extended, but uh, that's you know way far off at this point.
1: And another another one, Nissa Ravane, the elf deck.
0: No. Yeah, she's kind of uh, taken a big hit because not only have the elf decks kind of um, you know dipped in popularity, but some of the uh popular versions that I've been seeing recently don't even play the Nisuravain Nissa's chosen engine. They're so caught up with um you know Fauna Shaman, Azuri, Garrick, to just kinda overrun you that the kind of slow build up of a uh Nisuravain just isn't getting the job done.
1: And the one that I really
0: liked when it came out, uh Tezzeret the Seeker. I really think this guy has plateaued, and I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that Luis has very much dissected that deck uh, in its current incarnations, and, you know, there's just not a lot of success to be had with it. Um, it it's kind of plays like a combo deck, and with all these very aggressive decks that put a very quick clock on you, and all these, you know, Cobblade esque decks that are so consistent in their draws and have very powerful effects, it's very hard for the Tezzeret decks to kind of find a home in the current metagame, and while you actually, you know, this is actually a card that you, I feel that my input on it is a little more on the cusp of, I'm not, you know, reporting you news on the change in the value of a card, but a card that is, you know, it's right before its drop-off. I think that if you can unload this card at a $50 value on the trade floors, it's it's a go. I mean, this guy is going to drop for sure, the deck is not as strong, and it's current incarnations, not to say that you know, someone couldn't come up with a new idea. I I keep wanting to play like red, blue, liquid metal coating with a touch of black for my Tesseret's for card advantage, and I you know, obviously haven't made it work. But uh, I, I just I don't see him sustaining the fifty dollar uh, value, especially moving you know three months, three weeks to a, to a month forward. Um, you know, I I would I would not be at all surprised if it, if Tezzeret, himself does not make a show in uh in Dallas the next major event that all the pros will be at I have to tell you that kind of that would kind of shock me just because of the fact
1: of how much hype it got and how much and how well it did at worlds and things like that and how many people have keep trying to make it work so obviously if you're trying to make it work and it's not it's got to be heading in one direction I guess that's down uh let's go to one that's had it little roller coaster ride of up and down, and now it's back on the ride up, and that's Lotus Cobra.
0: Lotus Cobra, it, it seems like, you know, if you look at it in the bigger picture, it's, it's just like that Mythic Rare playable card that just never dropped all the way to the bottom of the barrel in value. Um, it came out huge out of the gate. Now, now I feel like I'm just saying a history lesson, but, you know, it came out of like $25, $30, and so many people kind of scoffed at its, its power, its playability, uh, you have to go back to Worlds tournaments to really see, like, Connolly Woods kind of show people the explosive nature of this card. And it's come in and out of a lot of standard decks. I mean, you think about the old uh, Mythic Inscription, where you're able to just generate a, a ton of mana with that card. And you get to see it in this newest incarnation in the Rug decks right now, where it is quite the force to be reckoned with, dropping... Big turn three and turn four plays that a lot of decks are just far too behind to dig out of the hole for. Um, and, and, again, it's, it's not exclusively in those decks. The Valkyrie decks are starting to put it in there as well because creature removal, again, with the blue-white decks, you know they're not going to really be able to or, or want to try to deal with your Lotus Cobra, and it's so much just free mana generation that uh, he's back on the rise, or she or it, I guess you would call it. <laughs> and let's
1: go to a sort of body and mind.
0: No, you know, not just the uh, counterpart to Sword of Light and Shadow. Again, a lot of the Stoneforge Mystic decks are diversifying what they can do. Um, ha- being able to mill your opponent out regardless of their life total is a pretty big deal, especially against the Valakut decks where the mountains, the, you know, there's a very finite number of them. Uh, it's really surprised me how good that card has been and how many more lists you've been seeing it in, in, in recently it's it's kind of at a whole new level that it's never been at before I mean not that it's been out that long but uh you know in, in the past i've said that the swords feel like a 10 12 dollar card while they're in print while they're in standard but obviously their power level with stoneforge mystic and the fact that they're both very competitive and have very strong effects is going to drive the value of this card up even higher and the one
1: that's not shocking that it's on the list is hero of Ridge.
0: Hero of Oxid Ridge. It seems like a card that I've mentioned, oh, it seems like countless times about how sweet this card is and how it seems like it should be all all over the place. Big red decks, little red decks, Boros decks, decks that like to have a mountain in them of any variety. This guy is super sweet. I mean, I, I think that the more that the Ka Blade variations inhabit the metagame, the more you're going to see the counterpoint to that be based around Hero of Ridge, Cause of the Hammer, Cutting Spark Mage. Um, you know, the red decks are really poised. I mean, when you have swords that give protection from every color but red and white uh, in standard right now, red is the removal color of choice. So the hero goes right into you know all those decks and does great things.
1: The one that you kind of shocked me with is uh, Mirren Crusader.
0: Kind of a, a counterpoint to that Hero of Oxen Ridge and the Boros Dex. uh Kind of another one of those sweet warriors with sort of body and mind, uh, with the built-in protection from Go for the Throat, uh, be able to get through Overgrown Battlements, Primeval Titans, uh, you know, acidic slimes, all these kind of popular creatures right now. The fact that he has Double Strike is a huge Deal, it's um, it's finding its way into to new builds, and I think that it's got even more room to grow and be a uh, a staple of the standard environment.
1: And let's talk about the one that has been talked about, uh, ever since legacies become popular again. It's candelabra Thanos. Butcher that.
0: Yeah, you know, I, uh, there was a good portion of me that didn't even want to mention this car because it seemed so stupid to mention. Uh, if you want to talk about inflated markets, if you want to talk about how crazy old cards are and can, in, you know, conversely to a competitive format that you want players to be able to have access to play, obviously you can stop and mention cards like Moat that, you know, I can remember a couple of years ago picking them up for 75, 80 a piece, knowing that I could unload them to cube builders and EDH players and knew that, you know, sure, maybe Enchantress played one. But watching a card like that skyrocket to 300 was a competitive in a format. Now we're talking about Candelabro, which, gosh, I mean, I was so happy to get like $40 for that card, like, not even not even a year ago. I remember having them being like, you know, these are cool to have. I've had them for a really long time. But I just, I don't picture it ever really doing anything for me. And no one's really ever played it. You know? Well, I, I mean, I remember like Antiquities-era Tron lands with a Candelabro. That's so cute. But, uh, this card has just exploded. And as where we've talked about really expensive cards in Legacy, Tabernacle, uh, Moat, that you're going to want to run one or two copies of, that can be $3 cards, here's a card that you're going to want to run four of. And if you're going to want to run four of it, I mean you're looking at like $1,000 for a play set. I mean, that, that's pretty absurd. With a, with a price tag of about $250, and you can't say it's like universal. You can't say that's what they're going for everywhere, and that's what everything's valued for, because... You can only really find them in a few places. And I don't think eBay is, is a is a, uh, a good example of this either because a lot of people that are posting those cards there now are people that woke up out of a coma being like, are, are you kidding me? Like, my stuff is worth that much? Hell yeah, I'll sell it. Uh, it's just really awkward. But again, it's it's got to be like one of the highest cards to try to trade for anywhere you can find them right now. Um, I, I, I don't want to like advocate... Trading for them because I think it's pretty absurd, and I think that uh, I would really hold my judgment on it until probably like after Providence. I mean, I do know Luis has been testing it and uh, is checking into his feelings on it. Again, being the the consummate blue mage, I, I have faith in what, uh, his findings. But uh, I, I'm half. I mean, I'm not. I'm like I'm a third astonished at, at how much it's jumped. I'm a third disappointed to see that it could happen in such a fashion that. Something could be priced out so quickly, and you know the other third with that extra third of a percent is excited to see where it could possibly go. So if you you know dig them up, it used to be like antiquities was Mishra's Workshop and a bunch of other cards in a set no one cared about, and now we're up, now we're up to two cards that have immense value. Well, you have a list here for what to play at FNM. I do. I have, a, I have a pretty pretty sweet list. Uh, actually, a little more research than I usually do for this segment, because I'm usually into, you know, what crazy card can you build a deck around. But, um, you know, I, I'm a big blue-white control fan. I've played it in what seems like a lot of recent standard environments leading up to Besieged. And uh, this week we've got a blue-white shell that's gonna run some sweet, sweet cards in it, like treasure maging for Wormcoil Engine or a Spine of Ishar, and also playing Vencer the Sojourner. So uh, check out that list, which I I guess we'll probably I guess we'll publish it since we can't really like talk about it too well in what we're looking at here. But um, that's that was really what caught my eye when I was looking at things. I mean, you've got the the tumble magnet, blue white, you know, you got your Gideon, you got your Jace, you got your condemns, your day of judgment removal package, but then you have you have some sweet, sweet options for how to uh, deal with the game in the in the mid to late stages. And just you can you can warn people right away. No, there are no squadron hawks,
1: and no, there are no swords of feast and famine in here. So you can be. <laughs> you,
0: know, you know, Luis and I just did a Magic TV about you know competitive standard decks that don't have Jace because we still we still understand that you know not everyone's packing four of this guy, and I completely understand and. I feel a little bit bad picking another deck list for uh, what to play at FNM that has 4Js in it. But, again, you get to play Spine of Ishsa. Like, come on, how sweet is that? With Venture the Sojourner? Looking to do something cool like that the entire time that guy's been out.
1: That, and I like the fact that if your Spine goes away, you can reset your tumble magnets. To be able to reset them and stuff like that, to be able to do that, that's kind of lots of options you have in this deck to be able to just really take over someone's game.
0: And I've yeah, that. I mean, uh, trying to find uh, a new direction to go with blue-eye control is is seemingly difficult with all these cobbled decks going around. I mean, trying to find a, a dedicated control shell would be very difficult. And so, you know, again, like the Grand Architect deck is trying to utilize Thrumming Bird to keep counters on your tumble magnets, but here you have Venser who can do so much more and just kind of just make things go absolutely crazy. I mean, sure, it seems like a little bit of a pipe dream, but you know that you can just ultimate that Vencer, cast that Spine, exile your opponent's best permanent, destroy their other best permanent, and then you're just kind of like, well, I I guess I'll do some other stuff now, but I'm I'm pretty sure I'm going to win this game. (laughs) Well, let's talk about the coupon of the week. Uh, It's war, baby. That is the coupon code of the week. The coupon code of the week is war. And... uh, it's a little bit different this time because we're going to give you an option of what you're going to want to get with this coupon code. So usually when you go to check out through our cart, there will be an option for a coupon code. This time around, you're actually going to ignore that. and Instead, in the comments section or anything you'd like to tell us section of your order, simply put war and then tell us what type of faction pack you would like. Uh, to be eligible, all you have to do is spend $10 or more in singles in this coming week. And then when you go to check out in the comments section, say war. And then if, if you'd like a Mirin or faction, or Mirin or Phyrexian faction pack, that is your reward for taking part in uh, the war.
1: Well, I know things are getting prepared for Grand Prix Dallas, but uh, are we going to be able to see anybody this weekend?
0: Maybe you? Oh, oh let's see. Let's see. We are, it seems like we're between events right now. I mean, I know Louise, when I left, Today was talking about how he's got to stock, you know, stock up this weekend on um, constructed videos because he's uh, going to be busy with the weeks to come. So I know he's at home working on that. I saw a Web recording as well for draft videos. Uh, is there anyone else? I don't, not that I can think of right now.
1: Not that you? That I can think of. You? You're going to be out this
0: weekend? Well, oh, I mean, I'll be, I'll be at a PGQ, but I'll be working. I'm sure if you want to find me, I'll be in the, uh, the greater Costa Mesa area. Um, hopefully we'll get, we'll get into town Friday beforehand and get a cube draft in for any of the players that happen to be in the area ahead of time. But, uh, if nothing else, you can find me at the luxurious, spacious, not at all awkwardly urinals too close to each other, Costa Mesa Women's Center in Costa Mesa, California, uh, (laughs) It is, um, as the tournament organizer Glenn Goddard likes to say, a historic landmark for magic. And uh, you'll have to ask him more about that. Historic being the keyword? Very historic. Uh, Yeah, Yeah, there's actually actually a good amount of uh, history.
1: Well, on that note, is there anything else you want to add before we end the podcast for this week?
0: It's been such a busy week for me. I'm sure there'll be plenty to say next week. And until then. Dump the Tesserets, pick up some heroes of Oxford Bridge. Boros is a better direction to go right now, and uh, win some matches, I guess.
1: All right, for everybody, for Robert Martin and Tristan, this is another episode of the Hardcast, and we are out.